your obedience, your love for one another is a family issue. And when you fail to love one another, when you fail to exhibit Christian brotherly love, you will lose your assurance because you are behaving as if you belong to another family. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part four of What Does It Mean to Be Found in Christ from Pastor Paul Twiss. Today, we welcome Pastor Paul to the microphone. We're in chapter three of the Apostle John's first letter to the early churches. The apostle is now an old man, and his writing seems quite blunt. Pastor Paul? Matt, John is very straightforward. Throughout the letter, he makes lots of memorable statements, like, for example, the one in verse 6. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, as a pastor, many times people will come to me and ask, how do I know that I'm truly saved? How do I know that I'm a Christian? And often they have an experience that they're looking back on, such as I walked down an aisle, I prayed a prayer so as to receive Christ. The problem with putting so much weight on that one experience is that it's not going to give the kind of assurance that John seeks to give. Throughout his letter, he centers the reader's attention on Christ, and then he gives these evidences of salvation. So in chapter 3, verse 10, by way of example, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Yeah, that's very direct. Thanks, Pastor Paul. Always good to hear from you in this way. And now here's part four of what does it mean to be found in Christ? First John chapter three, turn there if you have a Bible, verses 11 through to 18. And as you turn there, I just need to draw your attention to a typo in the bulletin. Uh, doesn't often happen. Learning to love like the Savior That's S-A-V-O-I-O-U-R. What's interesting is that the same typo has been reflected throughout my Bible, which is kind of embarrassing for the publishers, but we all make mistakes. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, learning to love like the Savior. The word reads, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, 
but in deed and in truth. Thus reads the word of God. One of the many benefits of being married is that you have a partner who's always able to feedback, to give you uh, feedback in terms of preaching especially. It's been said that a good ministry wife is always supportive, never impressed. And to that end, something that Laura often tries to do is to give me feedback on sermons. And she has a rule of thumb that I'm very grateful for, and that is simply that on the day of the sermon, this evening, she'll only restrict her feedback to positive comments. She'll tell me what she thinks worked, what was clear, what was helpful. It's the day after when I'm less emotionally raw, or maybe a few days later when we revisit the sermon, and she talks and helps me with some constructive criticism. Something we've laughed about often in those periods of constructive criticism is body language in the pulpit. What it is I do with my hands. Laura said to me once, you do realize when you preach that you build a box in the pulpit. She said, you seem to just keep building this box, and then at some point in your sermon, you start to put things into the box. And then she said, there's a turning point where you start to unpack the box. (laughs) And then when you really get going, you start to distribute the contents to the congregation. And I said, Laura, don't be so ridiculous. There is no way that I would stand in the pulpit and build a box, far less put things in it. When I'm preaching on such serious issues as the atonement of Christ or heaven and hell, how to become a Christian, I wouldn't do such things. This Christmas, I ate my words because for the first time ever, I don't know why I hadn't seen this before, I watched my son explaining something to some guests that we had around to our house. (laughs) He was talking about the gifts he'd received for Christmas, and it turns out that he had received a hammock. And the hammock's really good because you can put the hammock between two trees. And you can hang it up, and you can even sit and read a book in the hammock. And I sat, and I was astounded as I watched his hand motions, and I thought, number one, Laura's usually right. And number two, the old adage is true, like father, like son. Or if I can apply it more broadly, what you do betrays who you are. What you do speaks to your family membership. Now, this is a principle that we see all around us. And I'm sure you've got examples in your own life of actions, mannerisms, imitations that you've picked up from your mom and your dad or family members. When we look in Scripture, we see the same principle being played out. Amnon did a terrible thing with Tamar, But it really shouldn't surprise us because David was his dad who committed adultery with Bathsheba. Rehoboam ruled over Israel with great folly, but again, it shouldn't surprise us because Solomon was his father and he was not given wholly to the Lord. And there are many other examples that we could think upon that simply identify the principle that what we do portrays who we are. Our actions speak concerning our family identity. And this is the point that John makes this evening as he speaks about the Christian responsibility to love one another. 
Our love for one another is a family issue. Our love for one another speaks to our family membership. And he exhorts his readers, therefore, to love one another. It's a very simple lesson. But as soon as we've identified that principle, the next question has to be, how does that fit into the purpose that John gives in this letter to give his readers assurance? Anywhere that you read in 1 John, you need to be aware of the stated aim of the letter. There aren't many letters in the New Testament where the aim is stated so clearly as it is in 1 John. At the very end of the letter, he says, I'm writing that you may have assurance that you might know that you belong to Jesus Christ. He wants his readers to, to experience that comfort and the resulting joy that comes from a certainty that they are in Christ. And everything that John does in this letter is geared towards that end. So the question becomes, how is his exhortation towards love, love for the brethren, achieving that aim of giving assurance? And the answer is relatively simple. You see, the whole letter hinges around two pillars. The first is faith. Primarily, we grow in our assurance by simply taking in the Savior. John, in every corner of this letter, is showing us more of Christ in order to nurture our faith because assurance is a product of faith. The second pillar that is secondary but crucially important is obedience. We won't enjoy a position of assurance if we're not walking in a path of obedience, if we're not striving towards Christ-likeness. And John divides obedience into two primary areas, and they are keeping God's word and loving one another. Here, he says that your obedience, your love for one another is a family issue. And when you fail to love one another, when you fail to exhibit Christian brotherly love, you will lose your assurance because you are behaving as if you belong to another family. When you fail to exert the love that Christ demonstrated to us on the cross, when you fail to imitate your Savior, steadily but surely over time, you will lose all assurance and all joy in the Christian life because you are behaving as if you belong to another family. And over time, you start to forget who you truly are. Or to put it another way, the Holy Spirit won't testify to your spirit that you are indeed of Christ if you're not behaving like a Christian. Now, as you think through that simple mechanics of assurance, as you ponder it and turn it over in your mind, and as you see it mapped out so clearly at every stage of John's letter, over time it becomes clear that it, it isn't that simple. If only the issue of assurance were one-dimensional, Assurance is an incredibly complex topic, and the reason is because it doesn't simply involve doctrinal truth, but involves ourselves, and we are incredibly complex. We bring so much to the, to the equation of how it is we can be assured that we're in Christ. And in this case, I would simply say the truth is not one of us loves as we ought to love. Not one of us exhibits the Christian love that we should be showing week by week, month by month. Not one of us adequately, sufficiently 
demonstrates the love of Christ towards one another as we try to do life in the body together. We're not very lovable. There is much of the flesh that remains. There are inclinations of the flesh that fight against the leadings of the spirit. And all too often we give way to the inclinations of the flesh and we deny the leadings of the spirit so that the expression that we demonstrate to other brothers and sisters in Christ is anything but love. The sad reality is that oftentimes you look in on the church and see something that is not a picture of Christ-like love. And so as we take that into account, the question changes again, and it becomes one of how do we learn to love like the Savior, acknowledging all of the flesh that still remains, all of our flaws, all the many ways in which we fail, How can we learn to love like Jesus? Understanding that the answer to this question is so vitally important for so many reasons, in part because of the witness that we then give to the watching world. Jesus says, by this they will know you. In part because of the the witness that we give to the watching world, but so also here in 1 John, because it is bound up with our assurance. It is so crucial that you and I understand how we can learn to love like the Savior because that is where our joy will be found. When we answer that question and we're faithful to pursue the answer, that is when we'll grow in our assurance and in turn our joy and we'll enjoy a full Christian life on this earth. The answer to the question is so simple. It's the same answer that John has been giving at every corner of this book. There are so many questions that come out of 1 John, and he answers it so simply every time by simply saying, look at Christ. How can I learn to love like the Savior? John says, look at the Savior. Is there more to it? Absolutely. Are there practical steps that we have to think through in accordance with what our life looks like and what are the relationships that we have in the church? Absolutely. But the foundation is always the same. We learn to love like the Savior by taking in the Savior. And that is the argument that John lays out for us in this text. He's headed towards a picture of Christ hanging on the cross as our example of love. Before he gets there, he includes two other steps, negative examples. And so his argument consists of three points, and we'll track in accordance with that outline this evening. He wants us to know simply that we are not of Cain. That's our first negative example. He then says you are not of the world. And then finally, you are of Christ. And as John ministers those simple truths to us, if we would receive them and understand that we learn to love like Christ by taking him in, then we'll be on a path towards assurance and fullness of joy. So look with me then at the beginning of the passage. First point, know that you are not of Cain. John says, verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. So there's the principle. There it is clearly stated. It's not the first time in this letter that John has laid this out. We were visiting this idea earlier in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, he was very clear to say that Jesus gave a new commandment in this respect. Alluding back to that last meal that John enjoyed with Jesus, Jesus said, you've got the commandment to love one another. That's the old commandment. You know it. And the newness of the commandment is that you love as I have loved you. 
meaning you are willing to lay down your lives for one another. And John restates the principle here. The message you've heard is that we need to love one another. This fits with our family, with our family identity. And then curiously in verse 12, he says, we should not be like Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, two things strike me as I ponder this passage. Number one, why is it that John goes first to a negative example. You have to love one another, he says, and then his first example is a negative one. And then secondarily, why Cain? Why does he go all the way back to Cain? Well, the negative example, I think, is explained by the false teachers that are in view all the way through this letter. He wants to make a connection between the behavior of the false teachers and Cain, He wants to make sure that the recipients of this letter know that those false teachers who had left the church were of no way of the truth. So he deals with them first before getting to the positive example of Christ. And I think the reason he goes all the way back to chapter four of the scriptures is in order to make this a family issue. You see, he could have just simply named the false teachers and brought them into view more directly. He could have talked about Judas, who was the most immediate negative example beyond that, who walked out on Jesus and betrayed him. He could have gone back to the Old Testament and and found countless examples of those who failed to love the brothers. But John makes efforts to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, because what he wants to do is make this a family issue. Now, what do I mean by that? What's really interesting about Genesis chapter 4 is just how many connections there are with Genesis chapter 3. We normally read Genesis 1, 2, 3, and then we come up for air just trying to take in the enormity of what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, but Moses wants us to keep reading. And when we read Genesis chapter 4, we see so many connections back to the first three chapters. Eve says, I've begotten a man with the help of the Lord. She doesn't say child, which would be the norm. She says a man. Why? Because that instantly that connects our thoughts back to the many times that word man was used in the first three chapters. We then see Cain had the same occupation as Adam, both of them workers of the ground. We then read the narrative of Genesis chapter 4, and it hinges upon God asking questions in the same way that he asked questions in Genesis 3. Where are you, Adam? Where is your brother, Cain? And then we see in both cases the ground is cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. And then to Cain, he says, cursed from the ground are you. And there are many more connections that we could spend time observing. The point is simply that Genesis chapter 4 should be read as the natural continuation of Genesis chapter 3. Indeed, and this is the point, it is the very first manifestation of the enmity that is promised in Genesis 3.15 between the seed of the serpent And the seed of the woman. So God promises in Genesis chapter 3, there will now be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And what Moses seems to be doing as we turn the page into the Cain and Abel narrative is saying, and this is the first expression of it. This is the first outworking of that enmity. And what does it look like? It looks like murder. It looks like one brother rising up in the field and killing his brother. Back to 1 John, he says, when you fail to love, you're aligning yourself with that side. 
When you fail to love, you're identifying with that family. When you don't express brotherly love in the church, you're behaving as if your identity is with Cain and his descendants. And he's eager that we don't behave like that, but we know that we are not of Cain. And I think John has a particular application in mind as he goes on and offers some kind of interpretive comment. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You see, the Cain and Abel narrative is full of what we might refer to as gaps, of things not said. Moses intentionally holds back so many details, and it draws us in as the reader. John just offers one interpretive comment saying, the murder came about because of Cain's jealousy. He saw the righteous deeds of Abel, and that provoked hatred in his heart. And the application for us would simply be to understand that every time we fail to rejoice in the spiritual well-being, the spiritual prospering of others, we are aligning ourselves with Cain and his family. Examine your part in this church. See how it is you're behaving with those around you and whether there is any expression of jealousy, a lack of love, particularly at others' spiritual well-being, and know that it does not serve you to act in such a way. It does not serve you to act in such a way because John is trying to show us that such behavior will rob you of your assurance and your joy. He wants us to know and to behave in such a way that we are clearly not of Cain. Now, I want to acknowledge that such behavior is difficult. As we've already said this evening, there is so much of the flesh that remains within us. And it's so easy to give way to feelings of jealousy or pride. It is so easily for spiritual pride to take root in our hearts so that we fail to rejoice in the well-being of others in the church. It is so easy to suddenly align with the behavioral traits of Cain and his family. And I think John even anticipates this. As he moves on to this second point now, he simply states, know that you are not of the world. Know that you are not of Cain. And then he goes on, know that you are not of the world. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John seems to be anticipating the objection that we might have that this is a very high task that he's calling us to as he now maps the same family argument onto our present-day situation and the world. You see, it stands to reason that if in Genesis 3, two families are established, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, then there are but two families here today. There are but two families that exist on the earth today, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. In part four today, Pastor Paul explained that knowing you're in Christ is not a matter of checking a box or even voicing the sinner's prayer. It's something deeper, and it's also a better way of ensuring you've really been changed by God. If your heart desires to follow God, does it also desire to love your brother or your sister in Christ? If you'd like to know more about being right with God through Jesus Christ, visit TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. 
On the homepage, select Broadcast, and there you'll find an archive of gospel teaching from our pastor. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you enjoy this program, would you consider making a financial gift to be part of what God is doing through this outreach ministry? Your support will help us continue to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. On the homepage of TimelessTruthToday.org, select Donate to make your gift of any size. Join us tomorrow. It's part five in our current series, What Does It Mean to Be Found in Christ? I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.